All right, so let's get started. Thank you for coming here. Um, I'm Ryan Brandt. It's good to meet you all. Uh, good turnout for the first night. I didn't know what to expect. When you put a nerdy topic on the bulletin, you never know how it's going to go. Uh, now, it is a nerdy topic. This connects with everything, though. The Christian worldview world is really just Trinity. The gospel is really just the Trinity, right? Everything you can pretty much just summarize by saying the Trinity. Um, and that's going to be the first two weeks, including uh, today. So today and next week, we're going to talk about what is the Trinity. That's what the first and second councils get at. Uh, the word ecumenical just means all Christians. This, these are the, the, the first four councils that are composed of all Christians coming together from, at the time, around the Roman Empire, coming together and talking about God in a way that would answer questions, be consistent with the biblical text, and not lead to denying that Jesus could possibly save you. There was a lot of views at the time that did, implicitly usually, a views of God that if you thought through it, if you were a nerd and you thought through everything, you'd realize, holy cow, uh, this leads to the view that Jesus couldn't possibly save me. That's what a heresy is, by the way. Any view that either implicitly, usually, or even explicitly denies that Jesus could save you. I know it's a muddled word. I know you hear that word a lot and it's scary. Really, it is just an inconsistent view of Christianity, a view that can't affirm that Jesus saved you on the cross, through his mediation now. And all these views kind of get at that. And these councils summarize, here's good ways to think about God, right? So Trinity, first two weeks, and then uh, the third and fourth councils address the question, which is kind of even more interesting in many ways. How can Jesus be God and human at the same time? That's pretty cool. Like, God's infinite. Humans are finite. How the heck is he both? Contradiction, right? No, there's really good ways of talking about this, and it's mind-blowing and kind of cool. But anyway, that'll be the third and fourth weeks. Now, my recommendation, if you're here today, you got to come next week. All you're going to hear is everything wrong. Well, some of the right stuff. We're going to get at the beginning of the first council today. But how do I talk about the Trinity in a way that is rational? and not self-contradictory. That's what we're going to get at next week. All right, just for sake of time, that's the way it is. And I want you guys to just sort of accept the fact that I'm taking you through the confusion of the first few centuries of Christian thinking, and they're all trying to affirm, Jesus can save me. Now, how do we talk about God, Jesus as God, in a way that is rational? and not, again, contradictory. That's really all this is, and heresy is a contradictory view. There you go. Uh, I saw this class was called Four Creeds. That was a way longer introduction than I meant, sorry. Uh, four Creeds, in the, so I just thought I'd add that too. The, the first four ecumenical, all Christians counseled. So if you're Eastern Orthodox, if you're Roman Catholic, if you're Protestant, you affirm this. We all affirm this. Um, so anyway, we're four creeds. Um, so we're going to, you know, I'll, great kinds of creeds. There's the creed that you all know and love. There's the, well, uh, kind of creepy creed. Uh, there's the creed with the updated haircut, and there is kind of scary creed. So we're going to get at all four of these, not really. All right, so I'm going to come back to this slide a little later. It makes more sense a bit later. I want to begin by discussing that the tr Trinity just didn't come out of thin air. If you read the Bible well, if you read it a lot, I bet you've come across a lot of this Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father sending the Son, sending the Holy Spirit. What's all this language getting at? It's everywhere, but the word Trinity is not used. The concept is everywhere, but the word isn't. Kind of like incarnation. The whole Bible is about God's incarnation in the person of the Son. Call that Jesus. But the word incarnation is never used. The concept is everywhere. Right, it's the same with Trinity. Now, I'm going to go through this a bit quick because I do want to focus on the four ecumenical councils. Uh, if you're a note taker, your hand's going to hurt, just so you know. But uh, I'm looking at my wife, so I wasn't like judging somebody I don't know. Um, <laughs> your hand's going to hurt, and you're already pregnant. So, um, so yeah. <laughs> uh, so the first point I want to start with, oh, my bad. Um, the God of the Old Testament is one. 
there's one God. Or you can just say it that way if you want. Pretty simple, obviously, the God of the New Testament. Second point is the same God as the God of the Old Testament. God is one. There's no, like, contradic- there's no, like, development beyond that, right? But then we have this. Jesus claims to be the Old Testament God. In various ways, sometimes subtly, sometimes not, he calls himself Yahweh, I think. There's some debate on this in, in several places. But certainly what scholars agree is he definitely affirms that he's equal to Yahweh. God, Yahweh God, right? So there you go. We don't need to get into all the proofs. It's everywhere. You know, I and the Father are one. <laughs> you don't say that. <laughs> That's a no-no. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jesus speaks of his father, so he calls himself God, but he still speaks of father and spirit, sending a spirit and being sent by the father in the words of Jesus. So read like, you know, John 14 and following, especially, but it's elsewhere. Now, regarding the father, he claims equality with the father. I mentioned that. John, very clear. Matthew 11, also clear. He, in no uncertain terms, whatever the father is and does, I am and do. It's pretty bold, by the way. Guys, uh, Jesus had little brothers and stuff. They come out in the Bible. They didn't believe him. Do you wonder why? I grew up with you. You're not God. You're a finite being. Look at you. I mean, I'm more athletic than you, Jesus, but he claims equality with the Father. Um, and then in the context of the high priestly prayer, uh, he mentions the Father and the Spirit. And so on. And so you have some of these classic formulations that do pop up in the Bible. They're not everywhere. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Right? So God is one. Starting with the incarnation, we have this Jesus dude who, by proof of his resurrection, is God after he claims to be God. Right? And yet there is a threeness here as well. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So what do you do with that? So this is where, um, well, actually, uh, real quick, before we move on to some of these problematic views, you're not going to have time to write this down, but I just want you to see that in the Bible, there's already Trinitarian formulation everywhere. It's already there. I want you to see that. So here's Paul, who's, by the way, in the book of Galatians, is almost certainly, by almost any standard, writing before the gospel writer, certainly way before the gospel of John. And here's Paul reflecting, and hear him say this. But when the uh, set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So, and these are mind-blowing words, you don't speak this way back in this day, So, you are no longer a slave, but God's child, son, daughter. And since you are his child, God also has made you an heir. Now, an heir is somebody who gets everything from their predecessor. Heir of God means God, right? So, early Christianity has the fun time of accounting for our salvation. Now, I know our salvation means we're saved from our sins, but it means way more than that. And this is where it gets more interesting. It means we are united to God in Christ by the Spirit. As we're united to God, we become sons and daughters of God, heirs of God. We get everything God gets that our human nature can handle. All right. Now, this is mind-blowing, but now early Christians are reading this. Paul's reflecting on it. He already says it. Union with Christ is what I'm describing, by the way. And they have to count for a view where how in the world did whatever Jesus did at the cross mediate us to God and make us sons and daughters, heirs with him? Well, that's where this thinking begins. Does this all make sense so far? There's a lot going on, I know. Uh, and uh, remember, there's going to be a Q&A time. So there's some obvious problematic summaries. That's just a really quick, if this class was on the Trinity, we'd have a whole week just dedicated to that. But first four councils, got to kind of go quick. I want you to see, though, biblically, it's all there. What we're going to talk about from now on is all there. It's amazing. I'm more and more convinced. At first, I didn't believe it. <laughs> 
you know, a long time ago, but it is all there. Now, as Christians have developed thinking about God, well-meaning, well-intentioned Christians came up with some summaries of God as three-in-one. That's the language they'd usually use early on, three in, the three-in-one, or the one-in-three, or something like that. Trinity has not yet been coined yet. That's in the 200, early 200s. So the first uh, problematic responses, and these are now known as Trinitarian heresies. Why? Because if you, if you follow these views we're going to talk about, and you're consistent about it intellectually, you have to deny that Jesus could save you, that Jesus could mediate you to the Father. Do you see that? That's why it's such a, like, it sounds like a nasty word, and I guess it kind of is, but this is just confused Christians for the most part. You guys get that? These are confused Christians like you and me, all right? So the first view, I'll just call it adoptionism because it's easier to say, but dynamic monarchianism or adoptionism more broadly is the view that Jesus is not God. Jesus is merely a human, usually they'll say. Jesus is merely a human, but God adopted him. Uh, God sort of looked down and went, yeah, you're mine. I'm going to put my energy into you, and you're going to become like one with me somehow, right? Jesus is merely adopted by God. Is he God? No, they will definitely deny that he's God. Um, so if you like visualizations here, we're going to talk about the middle one and the one on the right next. If you like visualizations, think about just like this human person, probably like 33, 36 years old or something. We're not really quite sure. And Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist. Remember this in the Bible. Jesus gets dunked, and the voice from heaven comes out, you are my son. That's when the adoption started. They're, they're going to argue. That's when Jesus took on some identity of God, but he's not technically God. He's just adopted. By God. You guys see this? He's empowered and he's chosen by God, and that's what is meant by the Son of God. That's it. All right? So before 33, 36, whatever, before Jesus' baptism, he's just a human being like you and me. Eh, maybe a little more ethical and stuff, but not perfect, not God. You guys get this? Now, this view is not popular in the early church, and I, I, I guess you can probably see why. It doesn't account for the biblical data well at all. You know, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word. It's very clear, biblically, adoption doesn't really work. So this wasn't a very popular view, but it's there, and you should just understand. Now, we're going to come across a more sophisticated version of this soon. It's called Arianism. That was popular for good reason. It was super philosophical and sophisticated. And yet it failed horribly. All right, so the next view, and if you like vis visualizations, I like this one. The next view is called modalism. This one's still popular today. Well, popular, relatively speaking. Modalism is the view that God is one, God is one person, and the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Logos, etc., wisdom, all these are just different names for God, the same thing. Modalism is the view that God is one, one person, but he maybe puts on different masks, different forms as time goes on. You guys see that? Now, the word here comes from mode, uh, well, it's, I'll simplify this. Uh, it comes from the concept in that culture where there's not that many actors because they're not paid very well. Think of theater here for a second, all right? Uh, there's not very many actors, so they'd have to wear these kind of obnoxious masks so you could get their characters straight. And um, it, it would be translated in various ways, but the modal is getting at that. So they thought of God as having like a father mask, a son mask, and a Holy Spirit mask, but they're all the same exact thing. No distinction beyond the mask. You can see why this is more popular. At least it can affirm that Jesus is God. And the Holy Spirit is God, and the Father is God, and God is one. And there's even a threeness there. But we're going to see that this one fails, or maybe I'll just tell you that it fails. So modalism, they sort of, uh, we're not going to do that. That's way too nerdy. Um, so modalism, you can think of it this way. God is just like renaming himself and re-imaging, <laughs> rebranding himself. I had never thought of it this way, right? Rebranding himself as time goes on. He's known as Father in the Old Testament, which, by the way, isn't even true. You don't call Yahweh freaking father. That's really obnoxious. 
right? That's a Jesus thing. Yeah. But anyway, they kind of thought of it that way. Son starting in the incarnation, Holy Spirit uh, through today. Now, the problem with this view is all kinds of things, but think kind of common sense first. <laughs> you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. Thank you, Father. You know what I mean? Right? So, but that's, that's not going to make it a heresy. Right? The view... <laughs> Uh, is weird, it doesn't match the Bible, but how in the world are they denying that Jesus can save you? Now, if you heard in between the lines in adoptionism, that might be obvious. If Jesus is just a human and he's not fully divine, even if God chooses, he really can't mediate us all the way to God. He's not God himself. He's not a mediator, in other words. So that's the problem with adoptionism. Modalism, uh, historically and even today, in order to make sense of itself, ends up denying that uh, the mediation of Christ, that fact that the Son is still fully human, they, they, they're, they're going to deny that. They're going to say he shed his humanity after the ascension, typically. Or at least they're going to imply that he shed his humanity after the ascension. In other words, when you talk to a modalist, they don't have this present, strong, beautiful view of a present mediator who's God and human Mediate, mediating us, I, that's a weird word right now, mediating us in this present moment to the Father. They end up denying that because it's kind of weird for them, given the view that it turns the threeness of God into mere masks. But that's more advanced. So if you have, if you have questions about modalism, we can get to it later. Um, there's, it's still popular today. T.D. Jakes is a modalist. And if you ever... Now, apparently, I just had a philosopher friend tell me he didn't, he, he, he's affirming Trinitarianism now, but his seminary is not. So I don't, I don't think so. I think he's still a modalist. Um, I just did that last week. And it said what I'm saying, but my philosopher friend was convinced, so I'm possibly wrong. Uh, now, uh, you're like, why, why is this such a problem? Right? Well, if there's no present mediation... If there's no present uh, right hand of the Father, if there's no one who's saving you presently, then here's the picture of Christianity. Jesus did it on the cross, shed his humanity, now you do it too. You live, you be like Jesus. That's kind of dark. But Christianity has argued, no, salvation is fundamentally of God's grace. If God's grace is not primary and Jesus doing it for you is not very clear, then it's going to be heretical. And that's the problem with modalism. Now, it's a little more technical, and I glossed over that given the time constraints. Let me know if you have questions later. Now, modalism was popular. I'm talking in the 200s. Not wildly popular, but there was a good 30% of people who called themselves Christians that would naturally think modalistically. Guys, just to give you an idea, most of my students are either modalists or tritheists. They don't know it. You, do you guys see what I'm saying? They don't know they are, but rationally, when you listen to them, they cannot account for otherwise. So don't feel like, oh, oh, I need to avoid that. No, embrace it and then figure out why it's wrong. If you don't become a heretic, you will never become orthodox. You have to... Listen to these people, seriously. If you have to listen to these, sorry, you have to listen to these people, like they have a lot of good stuff to say because they do, and then you need to see why the view fails. That's what the early Christians are doing right now. They're not just pointing fingers. That's silly. That doesn't work. So here's the people that are figuring out, holy cow, modalism fails. We're not going to talk about this in detail. Here's some names for you. These are people that affirm something very close, although the language isn't invented yet, very close to what we call Trinitarianism today. All right? They each had their own problem. If you know history really well, you might be surprised that I have some of those names up there. I'm not, but... <laughs> Some of the, like, they each have their own problems, so don't get me wrong. Tertullian had sort of a modalistic sound to him. Origen, we're going to see, was a little bit subordinationist. In other words, his view of the son, Jesus, he thought kind of as less than the father without wanting to say that. He sort of affirmed that. That's a problem. We're going to see why. But these are like well, a lot of my heroes, at least. All right. So we still haven't gotten to the councils yet. 
I'll talk about why later. Now, it's a particular problematic summary. Do you want me to go back for you? Good, okay. There's a particular problematic summary of the Bible that comes from origin. We just saw origin. This is the same origin, origin of Alexandria. And he is somebody who affirms a great view of God, uh, and yet he falls short in certain ways. It's kind of like my students. He's trying to say Jesus can save you, but his view of God entails something less than that. And I'm going to show you that uh, rather um, briefly here. Origen was tasked, imagine being um, a Bible reader back in that day, not having that many commentaries existing, right? You can just go to the library and pick them up, right? It's really easy, so you can rely on, you know, stand on the shoulders of giants, so to speak. Now, Origen's one of those first really uh, brilliant systematic thinkers in the early church. It got him into problems, but don't be so hard on him. He wrote 800 books. Until you do, <laughs> be really easy on this guy. Now, he's a little weirdo. Like, anybody who writes 800 books would be a weirdo, right? Now, he's just reading the Bible, right? They were good Bible readers back then. Don't let anybody lie to you. He's reading the Bible, literally. But here, there's a lot of tension in the Bible, even in the book of John. Now, John's not a moron, Jesus isn't a moron. There's a reason there's a tension here. Origen didn't know how to resolve it exactly, or I should say he wasn't consistent with himself. So there's times where he's reading it, and it's very clear. Here's Jesus talking. I have not come on my own accord. Whoa. He who uh, sent me is true, and him you do not know. Jesus is implying that he's less than the Father here. Well, it's in the Bible, guys. See that? But then elsewhere, same book, next chapter. Jesus is tricky. He does it on purpose, by the way. He says why. He implies that he and the Father are one, which he will clarify more succinctly, and I'll give you that verse soon. If you knew me, Jesus says, you would know my Father also. Those are strong words. This is in, this, in other words, I am the Father. I and the Father are one. So first you said you're less than the Father, now you're saying you're equal to the Father. Which way is it? Well, Origen, unfortunately, he resolves so many things. You're, you're actually reliant on Origen without knowing it. That's the brilliant thing. There's so much this guy solved, all these riddles. And, you know, if you guys like to talk about God as incomprehensible and beyond space-time and infinite, Origen coined, uh, coined some of these terms, at least for Christian theology. Now, he didn't solve this, though. Which one is it? Is the son lesser than the father or is the son equal to the father? He didn't solve it, so he spoke like both. He didn't resolve it. But here's the problem. He tended to pick Jesus as lesser. The son is lesser than the father. And uh, theologians, and this is in the 200s and 300s, who were in the wake of origin, tended to be what you call subordinationists. They subordinated, made lesser, the son to the father. And this is going to cause great controversy, but wait for it. Think about the, uh, uh, the, the city of Alexandria. We're going to be there in just a second. A guy named Arius was a church elder in Alexandria following origin here, and it explodes. A controversy explodes, and that's going to be the first ecumenical council called to resolve it. Before we get there... And I'm not sure how much I want to touch on this. I like to usually hit it for like 40 minutes in a class like this to talk about this view called Neoplatonism, to see how this connects with Trinitarian thought, how it ruins it, and yet affirms it in other ways. Um, I don't want to get into too much detail here, but suffice it to say that Neoplatonism, see a word you know, or a philosopher you know in that, Plato, Plato, Aristotle's teacher, right? Plato, the pupil of Socrates. Uh, this is a, a word that was later coined. So Plotinus, that's uh, the person's name who made this a thing. Plotinus wouldn't call himself a Neoplatonist, but he was a Platonist. And he developed a particular philosophy that was popular, at least among certain people in the 200s, all right? So... Uh, Plotinus developed, first of all, a view that there are three divine hypostases. This isn't a word you know unless you know Greek. 
hypostases. Now, some of you guys that know theology know this is the Greek translation, somewhat equivalent of the word person in Latin, right? So this, Christians are going to end up using this. But this comes from uh, Plotinus, and Origen borrows it. And for the first time, we have a Christian calling the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three divine hypostases. The, the word isn't uh, really clear during the day yet. I just said person, but it really meant something more like being, right? Now, here's the problem. He thought of, Origen did to some extent, but Plotinus certainly did, thought of these three divine hypostases. Sorry, it's a little bit squished on the screen. I'm not sure how that translated, my bad. There's these three divine hypostases that are the origin of the world that we all know and love. The sensible world is this world. It's the world you taste and touch and feel. If you've read Plato, you know about this. If you don't, just hit yourself on your hand. You know what I'm talking about. This is the sensible world. And the sensible world in Plotinus's and later Origen's view is an overflow, an emanation. I'm not going to, we don't need to know the details here. Think of an unintentional, inevitable creation, right? When your cup overflows, just imagine the one right up here, the highest divine hypostasis as eternally overflowing and producing this world. Really complex. It's actually really beautiful. Origin takes this up, it creates problems, and yet it solves some other ones, all right? Now, have this in the back of your mind. Here's my main point I want you guys to see. In the Greek view, in the early church, in the Greek view back then, the view of God had in it the possibility of different levels of God. It's not just God or not, right? In our culture, I feel like you're either God or you're not. There's not like a different level of divinity. Well, in Greek culture, Neoplatonism, Platonism to some extent, had a possibility that there's like a highest divine being and then lower divine beings. The one is the highest divine being in Origins and Plotinus's view, but then there's lower divine beings. Now, Plotinus called the second one, the, I don't like news, let's call it the intellect or the mind. And then the third divine being is usually rendered soul. This diagram says world soul. You can see why Christians are going to think this is peculiar and interesting because the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And unfortunately, Origen just sort of plop. Father, Son, the Logos, the Word, the intellect, that's not a stretch at all, and the soul, Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit. All right, now this leads to all kinds of problems, but please in your head just have this basic point down. There are different levels of God. The Father's the highest level. This is a no-no. Don't hold this view, but this is going to be the view we're developing. The Father is the highest level. The Father is ineffable. You cannot speak about him. He's somebody that you can't even talk positively about. You can only say what he is not. The Father is infinite and eternal. Do you see what I'm doing here? He's not bound to space-time. He's not personal, like we're personal. He's not in time, like we're in time. He's not in space, like we're in space. He's, do you see where this is going? All right? So the Father's this highest level. The Son and the Spirit are then lower renditions of this. I won't explain all the details here because it will bore us to death. But suffice it to say, there are different levels of divinity. All right. So this leads us into the fantastic and beautiful journey that turns into the first, first ecumenical council. Neoplatonism is popular during the day, and it is especially popular in Alexandria, right? Origen was from Alexandria. And this next character we're going to talk about, sorry about the smaller print, I thought it would translate larger. This next character that we're going to talk about, his name is Arius. Maybe you've heard of that. Arius was a church elder, a very popular church elder in Alexandria. And he was super good, maybe you've met somebody like this, at like communicating something really difficult in a way that was just simple, but the simplicity led to confusion. 
right? You ever, you ever try to simplify something in your field that you know is really challenging and difficult, and you try to just simplify it to, so anyone can understand, even, even like a, a four-year-old? But you know that in the translation there, a lot is lost. He didn't care so much about that, and this is going to lead to some problems. So we're talking 318 A.D., all right? So here's Arius, and he's in the city of Alexandria, which was the second biggest city on and off in the Roman Empire, and it was known as the nerdy city, right? Now, you probably, probably think of Athens as the great philosophical city. Alexandria was by now. And it's kind of like New York meets L.A. meets what's a smart city these days. I'm not sure if any really exist, but you get my point, right? It, it, was, uh, it was a popular place where ships would come in. Even the slaves would discuss philosophy. We have pub songs from the day, and they sung about philosophy, right? So that, that was the jading and vexing and interesting issues during the day. Well, guess what? They're going to be singing about Arius very soon. So here's the problem. There's a young man, or an old man by now named Arius. That was a younger, uh, seems like a younger portrait of him there. So I'm going to talk about the basic events and then summarize Arius's position, which you intuitively are going to recognize because I talked about Neoplatonism. I know that was difficult. I get that. Um, but it's important to understand that Arius isn't just coming out of this from thin air or something. He's following origin and Neoplatonism. Now, I mentioned he's older, and he's influenced by Neo, uh, 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 Neoplatonism. And this is where it all begins in 318. A man named Alexander, you guys see how confusing history can be. His name was literally Alexander of Alexandria. He's the bishop. He's the bishop of the city. Now, think of like the lead pastor, Tyler. He's the bishop, all right? So Alexander... Uh, preaches on Sunday, and part of his message, part of his sermon, argues that the son is homoousius. Now, maybe some of you heard of that term. Maybe. It's something that Christians know and love today to some extent. Well, what this phrase means is the son is the same essence as the father. Homo, same. Usia, essence or substance, if you like that better. The son is the same essence as the father. So the sermon argues this. Now, that's going to sound pretty good to you today, I bet, because it's implying that the son and the father are equal. That's positive. But here's the problem with the term homoousius. Modalists used it. Remember modalism. Modalism is the view that, the, that God is three masks. He's not three persons. He's only three masks. So there's the Father mask, the Son mask, and the Holy Spirit mask. There's not real threeness in God. Hear it again. The Son, the son is the same substance. But here's the thing. Homoousius can mean four things back then, and you can hear it in the English. The Son is the same substance as the Father. The Son is the same essence as the Father. The Son is the same thing as the Father. The Son is the same being as the father. You guys just hear what it sounds like? When Arius heard this, now he's an elder. It's kind of imagine Frank, like he's the pastor under the bishop or something like that. He's sitting and he's hearing this sermon and Arius hears Alexander say, the son and the father are the same thing. Ooh, that is a no-no. They've already had a bunch of regional councils where Christians came together and said, don't say that. That's not helpful. So the word homoousius was really uh, it's a vexing term during the day, and it led to a lot of confusion. Now, I'm going to show you why this word is helpful, but you need to avoid modalism, and we'll get there. So this leads to, oops, excuse me, I keep forgetting where I'm at, Arius, who just, you know, uh, tried to shut down the bishop, is thrown out of office, all right? Arius is popular, right? City riots, naturally, right? So imagine Frank getting thrown out. <laughs> All the city of Arcadia is not really a city, right? And there's a riot. And in this riot, again, they liked philosophy back then. They're chanting in the streets of Alexandria with signs. Nothing's changed, guys. History, us then, today, it's all the same. They're chanting in the streets, there was a time when he was not. There was a time when he was not. 
there was a time when he was not. In other words, there was a time when the son did not exist. You see what that's saying? The son is not God. The son is not equal to the father. That's Arius' view in a nutshell. You want to know Arius' view? There's a time when he was not. If that's the case, notice Jesus can't save you. This is going to lead to problems. We'll talk about it in term, turn. Now, just to give you an idea, we even know of pub songs written about Arius. Uh, and he was popular. They were generally for him. One of them, the only one I really know, and the only one maybe that's in, um, excuse me, in existence goes something like, I, we don't have uh, Western harmony and melody. It hasn't been invented yet, the notation system. So we don't know how it was sung, but it was, um, I'm Arius of Alexandria. I'm the talk of the town. Friend of saints, elect of heaven, filled with learning and renown. If you want the Logos doctrine, I will serve it hot and hot. God begat him, and before he was begotten, he was not. Right? That's fun. In other words, you want to know about God? You guys want to know the explanation for who the Father is and who the Son is? There was a time when he was not. The Son is lesser than the Father. All right? So you, let's summarize his beliefs, though, because there's actually simpler ways of doing this. And I want you to see that his argument is really strong. It fails but it's strong. So I'm going to pretend to be Arius. This is what I do in my classes. But usually I spend, um, depends on the class, maybe 70 minutes just being Arius and arguing my view and seeing if students can beat it. It's a hard view to beat. Well, here's his view. First of all, the son cannot be God. His argument, the son cannot be, not fully God. The son is God, but a lesser God. So the son cannot be fully God, in other words, equal to the Father, equal with the Father. Why, though? Here's his first argument. It's simple. It's self-explanatory. God is immutable. That just means God doesn't change. Does the Son change? Does Jesus change? He was a baby. He grew up. Right? Jesus isn't immutable. Jesus changes. Jesus can't be God. Home run, right? That's his first argument guys capturing, does that make sense? Then the second, he makes just a purely textual argument here. Paul says it, oh sorry, that's father right there. He does exegesis, that means interpreting the Bible. He turns to Colossians, Paul in Colossians 1.15, the son is the firstborn of all creation. Home run, absolute home run, right? The son is the firstborn of all creation. This is how he thought of it. It's beautiful. It fails, but it's so close. In the beginning was the word, and God said, that's the son. Let there be light. In the beginning, the son did not exist. But when the father spoke his first breath, let there be light. That's the word. That's the son. That's the creation of the son. Firstborn of all creation. Textually, that's very possible. It, it really is. Here's another argument. Or uh, another way to look at it as well. This comes out in the Psalms, Psalm 2, and the author of Hebrews quotes it twice. You are my son. Here's the father talking with whom I'm well pleased. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Today. In other words, was the son not begotten before that? You guys get the logic here? The son seems to be lesser. I've seen a lot of concerned looks on everybody's faces. Good. You're becoming an Aryan. Good. Now, uh, what I'll often try to do is like make sure it's a weekend right now. Like it just starts right now. You all go home and try to figure out how to beat it. Because if Aries is right, Christianity falls apart. And he knows it, by the way. We're going to get there in just a second. Christianity literally falls apart. So that's his argument. The son is a created being. There was a time when the son was not. The father created the son. All right? There it is in the text. How do you get around that? Well, I'm, okay, it's church and people are going to be really bugged. I'm just going to tell you, right? So God is immutable. Well, okay, that one's too complicated. We'll wait until the third and fourth councils. Easy way to address it but it has to do with Jesus being fully God and fully human, all right? 
The second one, textually, it can mean created, firstborn. I was the secondborn. My older brother was the firstborn. He was a created being. But that also can mean preeminent. It can be a metaphor, just standing in for preeminence, the preeminent one over. Either one is exegetically possible. All right? And then here, this is where it gets fun. What does begotten mean? Have you ever wondered that? Like you read the Bible, it uses the word begotten a couple times. Does that mean created? Is that something else? That's what the first council is going to solve. So I'm going to let us sit on that for now. All right? His second argument, or belief, sorry, and this one's kind of obvious at this point, but I just need to say what the word hetero means. You probably know homoousius, same substance. Heterousius, different substance. Whatever the father is, the son's not that. The son's different from the father. The son specifically is lesser than the father, okay? Now, Arius didn't like to use extra biblical wording, so he didn't like to say this, but he believed the son, if anything, was not homoousius, was heterousius, different substance than the father. And finally, if you're wondering why this is actually a strong view and biblically warranted, he doesn't hold that Jesus is just human. Jesus is God, 99% of what the Father is. Remember the different levels of divinity? Neoplatonism, y'all, woo, okay. Um, now, he held that the Son created the world. The Father created the Son. I have a nice little imagery here. And then I'll go back if you want to see the God the Father created. That's the key word. Begot. He thought begotten meant created. God the Father created God the Son, and then God the Son, I don't really like that diagram, created the world. So God the Son is kind of our God in a way, but he's not everything the Father is. He's a lower-level divine being, a high-level divine, but lower than the Father, okay? I know worldviews are weird. Today, we think so differently than this. It might take a while to sink in. That's okay. The first time I heard this, I was like, what? This is dumb. And then I kept studying it. I'm like, oh. This actually makes a lot of sense. So that's how he would read the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. God said, Father said, Son created the world. Let there be light, and light was created through the lesser deity, the Son. Uh, it may be a little complicated. So let's just turn to the response, which was very quick in Alexandria. Um, by the way, don't watch the History Channel anymore. I hate saying that because I grew up on it. It used to be awesome. The History Channel makes it out like, oh, Arius' views were actually the more, uh, like they were assumed in the church, but then the Christians had to prove it wrong or something. No, when Arius came out with his views, they understood why he thought that Alexander sounded like a modalist, but Christians, at least 99% of the ones that were aware of, rejected his view, like on contact. It's like, Clearly, the Son is fully God in every way. But it became popular, we're going to see in just a second. Now, first, I want, to, I want to show you the arguments against Arius from his bishop. These are just the initial counter-arguments, okay? It's, there's going to be way more expansive ones, but I really like these first counter-arguments from his bishop. Remember, that's Alexander of Alexandria. First of all, this is clever, God doesn't change, right? If God is a father, then God changed because there was a time when the son did not exist. That's clever. I love Alexander. He died pretty quick. so he, we don't, he didn't solve the controversy, unfortunately, but he had a wit. Here's the second point, and this is something that Arius would take point with, but you can follow the logic. Alexander is going to say, Arius, my pastor, who's now kicked out and you started the riot. Arius, my former pastor, right? You can't really affirm that you can worship the sun. If the sun is the lesser deity, you really cannot worship the sun. Read the Bible. Jesus is worshiped consistently. You only worship God. Arius would technically respond, so all hear me out here, but he would technically respond, well, yeah, he's God, but he's a lesser deity. You can still worship our creator. But he's not our redeemer, Arius. Well, yeah, okay. See, see, so there's something that falls here. Now, this is why 
Arius' view lost. And I want you to hear this. This is early Christianity talking. Here was the major point of dispute. If Arius is right, Jesus is not fully God, not everything the Father is, then he can't be a mediator from us to the Father. He can't. Again, intellectually, you've got to think it all through. It's an inconsistent view. He makes salvation a matter of works, Alexander says. Well, Jesus did that. Now you should just be a good person. Be like Jesus was the gospel of Arius. Towards the end of his life, by the way, that's what Arius argued. He was consistent with himself. Yeah, I guess uh, salvation's a matter of emulating Christ. Oh, if salvation isn't Jesus did it, and based upon that, then you have something different than Christianity. The early church, the Bible, very clear about this. Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, hold this view. Now, it's not always clear among every theologian, but they hold this view historically. And today, I'm, I'm friends with these people. All right. So if you ever heard of uh, Athanasius? Oh, uh, by the way, uh, the, the, the Eastern Orthodox Roman uh, Catholic hold this view. I'm talking about the, the good view, that salvation is based upon God's grace fundamentally. All right, not, not the bad view. Oh, oh, just in case that was a... Now, if you ever heard of uh, Athanasius here, he's like a real hero of a lot of evangelicals. He steps in here, not going to cover him because he uh, didn't solve it, but his books are helpful and fun. If you want to read them, they're very readable. Um, some of the other people we're going to talk about are technical, but they solve the controversy, so I'm going to focus on them. Athanasius gets us halfway there. Uh, so a book, if you want to buy it, it's really blurry. Oh, it came uh, better than I thought it would. On the Incarnation. All right? It's a classic now. Um, Athanasius was Alexander's secretary during the Council of Nicaea. Uh, so he was the secretary, and then he later becomes the bishop, but he's controversial, and so he kind of loses his office and then gets reinstated and so on and so forth. Five times, I want to say. Stressful life. Uh, he's, a, he's a real hero today. I'm not going to talk about him, but just in case you heard of him, this is where he goes. He's like an Alexander clone. Um, now, the response that we're all going to talk about in detail, and this is where we actually get to the first ecumenical council, just when I wanted to. Glad I didn't nerd out too much. I hope this is all clear. Now, the emperor at the time is a famous one. Constantine recently became a Christian. Uh, there's debate about that. Let's just take him at his word. Um, I'm not really sure. Uh, Constantine eventually calls the council to settle this dispute. That is the first council of Nicaea. Okay? That's what we're going to talk about next. Um, now, you might be wondering, why in the world did it take until 325 A.D., 300 years after Jesus was around, why did it take Christians 250 to 300 years to have a first all-inclusive universal council? The answer is really simple, but I figured I'd get a question, so I'm just going to answer that really quick. Now, just for a second here, these dates, the, the second date is right on, 313. The first date's just kind of like around 60. Christianity is normally, in Roman Empire history, a persecuted religion. Not viciously so for the most part. Not viciously, generally. There were three periods of intense universal persecutions, and those are the ones that you're familiar with. If you see like renderings of Christians getting like uh, burned alive or uh, animal skin being put on them and then wolves being set against them or Christians being set on fire so they can light gardens. Yeah, these all happened. That did happen, but generally speaking... Outside of about 30 of those years, it was like uh, just kind of like jaywalking. Being a Christian was illegal, but no one's going to come after you for the most part. But this prevented Christians from, you know, bringing all their bishops, all their church leaders, and gathering together. They did it a couple times. It didn't go well. Everyone got caught, and then you're put to death. So Constantine comes to the scene, comes on the scene. He becomes em emperor through a really weird series of events that we're not going to cover in here. And in 313, that's that year I mentioned, he uh, makes Christianity a tolerated and even arguably a um, favored religion to some extent. 
we won't get into all the details here, but notice 313 is the Edict of Toleration, or Edict of Milan is what I usually call it. Um, well, the first ecumenical council is in 325. So that's why it took that long. Christianity was outlawed to some extent. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that map. It'll be kind of confusing. I'm going to show you a map to show you where this first council took place. All right? About five more minutes, and then we'll have Q&A time. So introduction to this council. This is the classic one you've probably heard about. If you, if you heard about one council, you probably heard about this one. It's kind of unfortunate because the council didn't really solve the controversy. It led to more controversy, but it was a really good attempt. Uh, so a quick introduction to the council. Imagine a bunch of bishops walking in and attending this thing, maybe 250, 250 bishops from all across the Roman Empire. So think of the Mediterranean and all the region around the Mediterranean, right? Now, the, many of these bishops, especially the older ones, were just part, I should say, were just tortured under the previous emperor's reign. And so there's a lot of writing that's really sober on this subject. If you're thinking of a bunch of really colorful clothing and bishops are all smiling, uh, this is from the Renaissance, at least most likely, right? All this like beautiful colors. And all, that's not what it looked like. It looked much more. I tried to find a picture, but I couldn't. Kind of like, you know, Walking Dead. Uh, ways Roman emperors would torture Christians, at least under the last reign, uh, were very Assyrian-like, if that doesn't make any sense to you. They would fillet, uh, they, they flayed you. Um, they would um, cut all the uh, tendons in your hands so it's completely useless. Uh, your bones would often show after they were done torturing you. Now, this didn't happen all these 300 years, but when it did happen, it was bad. And a lot of these bishops, I mean, it was like a parade. It was sobering. Right, so don't imagine if you're imagining like this beautiful, like hey, let's get together and talk about Jesus. It was more of oh my goodness, the bishop who was almost tortured to death, right, is going to go. Uh, how do we how do we talk about uh, Jesus better? All right, so this happened in a city of uh, Nicaea, which was the second choice. Nicaea has better weather, so they changed it seriously. To Nicaea, Christians care about good weather. If you're here, sorry, you're not one of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> yay, Phoenix. Uh, so if that's uh, present-day Turkey, this is in Asia Minor, if, but it's uh, obviously in the pretty close to the middle north end of the Roman Empire. And this was the question that they're addressing. Now, this question was already answered in all but about two of the bishops' minds. This, is, this wasn't called as a debate, by the way. Does that make sense? This wasn't like, let's debate whether the son is equal to the father. They knew the answer. But it was called to come up with language that can intellectually articulate what we're saying without contradicting ourselves. Does that make sense? All right? They're not inventing new doctrine. They're coming up with language that's consistent with how we worship and what we believe and what we've held since biblically the Bible, right? So that's the basic question. Is Jesus, that same person who appeared on earth, equal to supreme being, Father, God, whatever you mean by that, or some sort of mix, some sort of demigod or a lesser god? All but two bishops were obviously yes. Obviously he's equal to the supreme, whatever God is, Jesus is, all right? Now, there's two parties attending, and I mentioned that all but two bishops uh, uh, held to yes to that question. Well, there were a couple bishops that did follow Arius on this point. Arius was clever, and like I mentioned, you can kind of make sense of the Bible with him. Your theology falls apart, your view of salvation falls apart, but you can kind of make sense of it. And they held that the Son is the highest emanation, the highest form that you can be without being the father. The, the son is 99.9% .9 God, but he's not everything the father is. The other party argued that the son and the father are equal. All right? They're equal. Hear the language in English. It translates really well. Do you almost hear how it sounds like modalism if you're not careful? 
the Son and the Father are the same being? Is that what you're saying? No, these group uh, followers of Alexander are saying. But they're equal in power and glory. They're both fully God. That's the confusion that this council, that the bishops at this council didn't grasp before going in. And this gets really comical and funny. We're going to have to end soon. And so I can't get there, but this leads to a bunch of Christians that are talking past each other. You just said the Father and the Son are the same thing. No, I mean homoousius, in other words, same essence. That means same thing. It's the same thing. It's the same meaning. And they're using different definitions of the word homoousius, and at least all kinds of funny implications, really, you know, bad implications. All right, now, this was the fundamental question, and we're going to answer this when we come back. I do promise you. You can talk about God as triune in a way that makes complete sense. You can. Now, you, 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 I need to be careful how I say this. It's more than just three, three persons, one substance. That implies tritheism. That's not the answer. That's 50% on the way to the answer. Three persons, one substance. I want you to know that you, it makes sense. But this council didn't solve it. And this is why they were talking past each other. Really what they needed to debate was something so simple. Does begotten in the Bible, the son is the begotten one of God. Does begotten in the Bible have a temporal? That means time. A sense of time or a logical or eternal sense. The son was begotten by the father. You believe that. I believe that, but I don't mean created. And that's what they weren't clear on. The son is eternally begotten. That's right. The son is temporally begotten. That's Arius. Do you guys see the major difference? Now, just to go just a little bit towards solving this, did God create space-time? Does time apply to God? If that's true, Father, God, begetting the Son happened in eternity. There was never a time the Son did not exist. Let's say that better. The Son always existed. God's not limited to space-time. That's not going to solve everything, but that is the distinction they were not clear about. Arius is saying it's temporal. He wasn't there at the council, by the way. He wasn't a bishop, so he wasn't invited. But his followers were arguing that. And Alexander and the rest of Christianity and the only way to make sense of Jesus saves you is to say that it is an eternal begetting. Let me just conclude. The Trinity is simple. Just think of it this way, and then I'll give you all the technical language next, next week to make sense of it. The Trinity is simply this. The Father sends the Son and the Spirit. The Father sends the Son and the Spirit eternally. The Father sends the Son and the Spirit. Imagine outside of space-time, the Father sending the Son and the Spirit. It's always, always will be. The Son always existed. The Spirit always existed. And they're exact imprints of the Father, but there's a distinction between the three. And that's what we don't know yet because it hasn't been philosophically solved yet. All right? So keep it simple. Guys, the, tr the Trinity, I meant to actually start here. The Trinity is simple. It's the gospel. The Father sends the Son and the Spirit, bonding you back to himself. The Father sends the Son and the Spirit into your heart, saving you. Sends the Son by way of incarnation, the Spirit by way of Pentecost. And there's so much more to say there. And if you're a little bit confused, it's because Christians didn't know how to articulate it consistently yet. <laughs> they didn't know how to articulate it consistently yet. And that's what Gregory of Nyssa and the Cappadocian Fathers solve. We will get there next time. Here's the creed. We will start here next time. This creed is an excellent start. You can take a picture. You can read it. You can see how it solves Arius's problem but it doesn't talk about the Trinity well enough yet. It sounds like modalism, y'all. It's not modalism. We're not modalists, but this sounds like modalism if you're not careful. Homoousius sounds like modalism if you don't know more. That's okay. 
We're in the year 300. We'll go to 400 next week. So, whew, if you guys are feeling overwhelmed, this is the hardest part of my semester for my students. I mean that. God and Christians thought they were the biggest nerds back then. The phrase Christians like to use, following Justin Martyr, this people in our tradition, they thought they were the greatest of all philosophies. And they spoke like it. And they acted like it. Not like all pompous. But they didn't want to contradict themselves. All right? So if you're feeling overwhelmed, you should. Alexander did. Arius did. They're talking past each other still. Um, and yet, we can start there, and we can talk about how much it solves, but then how many inconsistencies potentially can arise if you're not careful. The Son and the Father are equal, but they're not the same. They're both fully God, but there's a distinction between the Son and the Father. Athanasius couldn't put his finger on it. He believed it, but he didn't have the language yet. Later, people would invent it. Thank you. By the way, tomorrow is Hug a Greek Orthodox Priest Day. The Greek church solved this for us. I'm all, this is all Greek. What I'm doing here is just Greek. It's actually not Hug a Greek Orthodox Priest. Um, but it'd be funny if you actually went out. There's plenty. Greek philosophy solves Christianity. And Christians were very much proud that their view was the fulfillment of Stoicism and Platonism. Jesus spoke often like this. Paul quotes the Stoics and the Epicureans. Well, we debated the Epicureans. Nothing to be scared of, y 